0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9am at Discovery Church in Boise where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at RedemptionVoice.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill.
1: A few years ago, we all heard the term affluenza for the first time. Do you remember that news story? Affluenza, Ethan, Ethan Couch's legal team used it as a defense in his trial for drunk driving after he killed four people in Texas. And most people think that the claim that Couch was so spoiled by his parents that he didn't grow up with boundaries and he didn't realize the consequences of his actions was a ridiculous argument for why he shouldn't be held accountable for his crimes. And then, once he got probation, he decided to head to Mexico and violate his parole with his mother. But scientists around the country Psychologists are saying that there's something here that society has overlooked. There's growing evidence that children who are grown up in that sort of influence, that sort of affluence, are becoming increasingly troubled and reckless and self-destructive. And sometimes those poor little rich kids are really poor little rich kids. Uh, this There's this psychologist. Her name is uh, Suni Luther. And Luther has been saying the lives of privileged kids for 25 years, and her research has shown that drug and alcohol use among rich teens is higher than among kids of the same age group in their cities. And further, children growing up in wealthier households are more likely to be suffering from anxiety and depression compared with the national average. And crime, which was believed to be an issue for children of poverty, there are comparable levels of delinquency for children in lower income and upper income households. They're not saying that affluent parents do this or even that most do, but there's a sizable, vocal minority of parents who do not just bail their kids out but do it repeatedly in inappropriate circumstances, Luther says. So these are the kids who then start to believe and rightly so, I'm not getting caught and even if I do, nothing's going to happen. There's a point to this, I promise. We'll we'll keep going. So let's look at the history of these these children born into this sort of privilege. We've got... Jason J. Gould, one of the richest American citizens of all time, in the late 19th and early 20th century, he was worth $71 billion in today's money. And his oldest son, George, inherited the family fortune. George had seven legitimate and three illegitimate children, all all of whom he recognized in his will. But more of George's money went to creditors than to his offspring. He had $30 million to give away when he died. And... He had taken most of that and went to creditors rather than to his family because he had squandered the wealth. Newspaper mogul William Randolph first died in nineteen fifty one at the age of eighty eight with a couple of billion dollars in that in nineteen fifty one. And he knew that none of his children could handle the wealth that he had created. They were such awful people that he took away control of them from the business and he gave away All of his voting shares to a trust and a board of trustees. You look at our uh, British cousins in the, the Windsors, and Elizabeth, at 94 years old, would not abdicate the throne even on her deathbed to her son Charles. Why? Because he had not been formed and shaped in a way that fit the kingship. You look at her son Andrew who's been demonstrated to participate in Jeffrey Epstein's sex abuse of underage children, all of the fighting, and entitlement, and petulance. His son basically said, I'd rather not be a part of this family and continue on with what I've experienced. You look at the Trumps and the Murdochs and the Carnegies and the Redstones and on and on and on. This sort of affluence has a shaping effect on us. Paul Krugman, who's a, who's a writer and a uh, an economist, he cites Psychologists at UC Berkeley and saying, the affluent are, on average, less likely to respect the norms and even laws themselves; more likely to cheat than those occupying lower rungs of the economic ladder. Krugman claimed that Piff's research constituted a conclusion from social science confirmed by statistical analysis and experiment, and experiment, and he calls it billionaire derangement syndrome. You're probably wondering what the heck does this have to do with Palm Sunday, Robert? uh now i i have been known to have really long introductions i i acknowledge that but this one i think is is important um the life of these wealthy sons has one thing that most of us don't have access to that's the reason why people pursue power and money all they're doing is what all of us do all the time they're trying to avoid pain and discomfort They want to pursue pleasure and power so that they can feel good. Does that sound like your life? Does that sound like my life? If I'm honest, most of my day is spent trying to avoid pain and trying to find a little bit of comfort and pleasure. When you think about having money, winning the lottery, maybe selling your business or getting that promotion, I bet that most of you imagine that parts of your life that you could outsource to other people, do you, like When you think about the lottery, you think about who could I pay to do that one thing that I really don't want to do? For me, it's laundry. Okay, I would sell my soul to never match kids' socks again. Can I get an amen? Is anybody else in the room? We do like 12 loads of laundry a week, and I, I'm pretty sure the water deficit in our desert is just from our family doing laundry. So, so what are those annoyances that, that have you wish that you could outsource and use your wealth to coerce other people into being your servants because you have the money that they need. Sometimes sometimes I imagine, like, wouldn't it be great to be wealthy enough to have an assistant who answers all my emails telling people that I don't have time to meet with them? Wouldn't that be just like such a luxury? Well, the more wealth you have, the answer is the less you do that is difficult, that is mundane, that is painful, that's uncomfortable, that's annoying. Our wealth is a tool that reveals the character that has formed us. And that's why we love to gawk at the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. The second generation that grows up in wealth, it deranges them because the lack of pain and the lack of discomfort and the lack of the mundanity of life shapes them into people who, rather than suffer, become insufferable. And this isn't going to be a popular sermon, but the inevitable suffering that comes with being human—it has a distinct purpose. It's meant for us as a gift. I want to jump into the story of Jesus that you probably haven't spent much time in from Holy Week. If you got your Bibles turned to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Okay, so one day as jesus was teaching the people and he was preaching the good news in the temple the leading priests the teachers of religious law and the elders they came up to him and they demanded by what authority are you doing all these things who gave you the right who do you think you are let me ask you a question first he replied well did john's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human well they talked it over among themselves and they said, well, if we say it was from heaven, he's going to ask why we didn't believe John. Good question. But if we say it was merely human, then the people are going to stone us because they were convinced that John was a true prophet. So they finally replied and just said, oh, gosh, Jesus, I don't know. And Jesus responded, well, then I'm not going to tell you about what authority I do these things. Just so vital like So Jesus turned to the people again, and he told them this story. He said, A man planted a vineyard, and he leased it to some tenant farmers, then he moved away to another country to live for several years. Wouldn't it be nice? At the time of the great harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant and beat him up and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant. I assume he was bigger and stronger. But that one, they also insulted him. I it, like that they didn't just beat him up this time. They made fun of him. They insulted him. They beat him up. They sent him away empty-handed. And then a the third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What am I going to do, the owner asked himself. I don't want to actually go myself. <laughs> I know. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they have to respect him. But when the tenants' farmers saw his son and they said to each other, Well, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard, and they murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do for them to them? Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he'll come, he's going to kill those farmers, and lease the vineyards to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen, as listeners protested. I like that Jesus tells him the story. gets him like emotionally engaged with it. And they like start wagging their fingers. And then Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean when they say that the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone? Everyone who stumbles over that stone is going to be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. And the, relig- the teachers of religious law, they weren't dummies. And the leading priests they wanted to arrest jesus immediately because they realized that he was telling the story against them and they were the wicked farmers but they were afraid of the people's reaction this is a story it's familiar you've heard it before but this is within a day of what happened on palm sunday do you see what jesus is doing here for the first time he's openly challenging the sanhedrin those 70 elders and rulers over israel who oversee the temple this is this is in the temple this isn't like in some synagogue in galilee this isn't along some roadway this is a rabbi coming into the temple that was owned and managed by the sanhedrin and jesus throwing fire at the sanhedrin saying you have been evil farmers you have beaten And you have mocked and insulted the representatives from heaven. The God who would send his his voices in these prophets. Jesus is challenging challenging the Sanhedrin openly. And and this may seem like not a big deal to us, but he knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows right here that the Son of Man is going to die at their hands because he is challenging their authority he speaks the truth even though he knows it's going to mean his brutal death palm sunday and good friday is this inevitable march to the death of jesus so why am i contrasting this with the sons of billionaires and their ill-formed character well holy week is so often seen as merely a a concluding part of the third act of the cosmic drama unfolding in Scripture. We see Jesus dutifully playing his part as the martyr to the cause of redemption. A foregone conclusion that his death is going to result in this triumphant Easter a week from today. But if we slow down the story and we watch, we watch Jesus. He isn't just saving us through his submission to death, even death on the cross, as Philippians 2 says. He's showing us that the way of the kingdom of God and eternal life takes us on an unexpected tour a detour through suffering and we call this this journey the jesus shaped journey you see holy week is not merely a, a story unfolding before us but it is the way of the king palm sunday is traditionally a sunday service where we look at the triumphal entry of jesus on a donkey into jerusalem And we see it as a foretaste of the reality of the kingdom coming through Jesus' resurrection on Easter and in power at Pentecost. And we do that because, honestly, it's more fun than preaching the other parts of Holy Week. And it happens to fall on Sunday. So we kind of do Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, and two-thirds of you aren't going to show up on Good Friday. So you just have Palm Sunday and Easter, triumphal king to triumphal king. And fortunately, our liturgical cousins, those in the Anglican tradition, they work hard to meet throughout the week. If, if you've ever been a part of the Anglican church, Alyssa was telling me during college, she'd come out of Holy Week exhausted because she had something twice a day all week for, for the entirety of the week. But I want to highlight one particular theme that I think that runs through Holy Week, and that's this. Jesus chooses the way of the cross. It's not thrust upon him. It's something that he makes happen so let's look at the evidence john chapter 11 verse 20 through 22 because they are a threat everybody looks at their life that lazarus is alive and says he's going to be crowned as messiah and he's going to expel the sanhedrin so we must kill him jesus chooses to let his friend lazarus die he waits for it then he goes then he mourns with his friends and he chooses to raise Lazarus even though he knows what it means and then he doesn't walk around bethany to avoid the awkward conversations with the sisters how many of you would have thought it'd be best to give mary and martha some time because i know what martha's going to say you know what i'm saying you know, you know the martha's in your life there and and this is what happens when martha got word that jesus was coming She rushes out to the road. Mary stayed in the house because she's nice. We all like Mary. But Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God's going to give you whatever you ask. Jesus chooses the awkward conversation. He chooses to mourn Lazarus' death. He chooses to raise Lazarus even though it's going to mean his own death. john chapter 11 verse 45 it says many of the people who were with mary they believed in jesus when they saw lazarus raised but some went to the pharisees and they told them what jesus had done and then the leading priests and the pharisees called the high council together said what are we going to do and they they asked for each other this this man certainly performs many miraculous signs if we allow him to go on like this soon everyone will believe in him and then the roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation so they decide he must go jesus chose palm sunday he chose to walk into jerusalem as a conquering king as a king that was going to bring the shalom that they were looking for even knowing that his coronation on palm sunday is going to be part of the story that's going to lead to his death in john chapter 12 it said many in the crowd had seen jesus call lazarus from the tomb it was only seven miles away raising from the dead and they were telling others about it That was the reason that so many went out to meet him because they had heard about the miraculous sign And then the Pharisees said to one another there's nothing that we can do look everyone has gone after him Palm sunday was a choice that jesus made that brought him before the roman and the jewish authorities And then on monday jesus chooses to clean the temple To confront the powers that destroy him on friday luke chapter 19 jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices he said to them the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer but you have turned it into a den of thieves after that he taught daily in the temple but the leading priests the teachers of the religious law and the other leaders of the people they began planning how to kill him because they could think of nothing but they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word that he said you see jesus is choosing death Jesus is making it so that the Sanhedrin has to kill him. Jesus is choosing to do the things that will raise the ire of those in power. And then we see on Monday, Thursday, that Jesus allows Judas to do his work. I've often wondered, why doesn't doesn't Jesus try to win Judas over? When he openly says, one of you is going to betray me and in matthew 26 judas the one who would betray him asked him rabbi am i the one you gotta imagine jesus was like are you serious bro like don't don't mess with me you know that i know what's happening just go do what you have to do see jesus didn't try to stop judas in some ways the story as it unfolds jesus was challenging judas to do what he felt he needed to do which was to correct the situation Judas saw Jesus going a path that he couldn't follow. He knew that there was this imminent conflict coming between Jesus and his disciples and the establishment in Jerusalem. Judas was a smart guy. And Jesus doesn't try to stop him. In Luke 22 it says, But here at the table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it's been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? Do you see how it's unfolding? Not only did it have to happen, but Jesus chose at every step of the way to move towards the cross rather than away from it, to move towards discomfort rather than away from it, to embrace suffering rather than run away from it. And then Jesus, in Luke 22, chooses to let the Sanhedrin arrest him rather than let his disciples start a rebellion. Verse 47, but even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walks over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And one of the other disciples saw what was about to happen. They exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords you got to imagine Jesus going, you brought the swords? Have you have you learned nothing? And one of them then took a sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. The slave's like, bro, I work here. I'm just doing my job. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. And then Jesus spoke to the leading priest, the captain of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him and said, am I some dangerous revolutionary? Jesus is saying, listen, it's not like I'm fighting you here. It's not like I'm trying to stop it. I chose this spot. I chose Judas. I challenged you to come get me. Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you just arrest me in the temple the other day? I was there every day, but but this is your moment. I, I just love that. But this is your moment. The time when the power of darkness reigns. And then Jesus doesn't defend himself to the Jewish authorities. He allows them to hand him over to the Roman authorities. Later on in Luke 22, verse 67, and they said, Well, tell us that you're the Messiah. This is Herod. But he replied, If I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you a question, you're not going to answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power god's right hand do you see that the path that jesus is treading is the only path the kingdom coming in its fullness it's through his choice to suffer and then jesus doesn't defend himself to herod or stop him from handing him over to pilate oh is, is he a galilean pilate asked well they said that he was pilate sent him to herod antipas because galilee was under herod's jurisdiction Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He was was like, oh, the magician's in town? Let's get him in here. I'd love to see a trick. And he asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus doesn't defend himself, refuses to answer. And the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, they're there shouting their accusations. And then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate had been enemies before. They became friends that day. And that started the unlikely friendship. (laughs) There should be a rom-com about Herod and Pilate and how they they became friends. Sorry, that got dark. (laughs) Jesus won't defend himself to Pilate. He's not going to stop him from being handed over to death. Luke 23, verse 3. Pilate asking him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, You've said it. And Pilate turned to the leading priests and the crowd and said, I don't find anything wrong with this, man. Every step of Holy Week is a choice. Much like Jesus answered the call at the beginning of his ministry, he was driven out into the desert by the call of the Father. He was driven out into the desert to suffer, to wait, to cling to the Father. And this here in Holy Week is the last temptation of Jesus. The temptation, the temptation of Jesus to not do what he had purposed to do. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie called the, the Last Temptation of Jesus, and in Scorsese's film, There's this imagined moment on the cross where basically there's this uh, alternate universe where he leads a comfortable life. He marries Mary Magdalene and lives a quiet life, splitting wood at his cabin and raising his kids. That was the last temptation of the Christ. But I think that the temptation was much simpler. The temptation of Jesus at every step along the way is to choose to avoid pain and suffering choose his own comfort over participating in the work and the mission of the father to see the coming kingdom so we see these two sides contrasted which demonstrate a key difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of god when we seek pleasure comfort when we avoid confrontation when we run away from pain when we use our privilege and our position to avoid work when we dominate others to use them for our pleasure, or to save ourselves from work or pain, we leave a wake of destruction in our path that lasts for generations and multiplies across time and space. This is the easy way. The wide road that leads to destruction is the way that's written large on the billionaires and the affluent us. But when even one person Submits themselves to work, to hardship, to having difficult conversations, to speaking prophetic words of truth, to pain and suffering for the sake of others. What happens is we see a renewed world flow out of the wounded hands of that one who chooses the way of suffering. We see life pouring out of his side. We see this flourishing life that we've all hoped for now available to a world desperate for hope. This is the good news of hope. Is that the way of the cross brings life. Not just Jesus's life brings life, but when each of us choose to follow the Jesus-shaped journey. When each of us join in, we see that the world around us is transformed suffering and pain they aren't themselves a result of the curse but are merely the pathway to formation as a human we look at genesis chapter 3 and we see the curse of the ground that it will create toil and we say well all all pain must be bad that's a misreading of genesis chapter 3 there was work and there was formation and there was hard choices and there was pain before. The fall. There was pain before the fall. And until we do those things that our flesh wants to avoid, we cannot become the kind of people that are going to belong in God's kingdom. This entire life is actually just preparation to be a part of God's family, and suffering and transformation are the sign of belonging to God's family. Because the fruit of the Spirit is the character of a person who has been formed through suffering, pain, and service. You don't get filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control without the formation of suffering, without the work of the choice of hard work, without the pain that comes from facing the demons within us. So what we see in holy week and christ march towards the cross this this jesus-shaped journey this is not some superhuman work of jesus the superman doing what we could not do for ourselves now let's be clear we cannot do the work that jesus did on the cross on our behalf it is only through his representative his 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 place His only place is the incarnation of God, the son of the king who comes and dies in our place so that the vineyard can be set right again. That's still true. He died once and for all so that we might live. And we needed him to die in our place, but it was so that we would become the kind of people who would walk the Jesus-shaped journey, who would follow him to the cross and experience the life and the abundance that he wants for us. Um, you've seen Romans chapter six, but I, I think it just summarizes it so well. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God could show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined in Him, in Him, in with Him in His death, for we died, and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father. Now we also may live new lives. John, or, uh, Paul here is saying, the only way to the resurrection is through the death of baptism. It's through following Jesus to the way of the cross. And since we have been united with him in death, we're also raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. This is the way. The Jesus-shaped journey is following him into the death of flesh and being raised to new life in the kingdom of God. The last week of Jesus is a master class in being a human submitted to God's will. And the Jesus-shaped journey is, is a simple journey that brings life. It starts with a call. Jesus doesn't do this because he thinks it's a good idea. Jesus doesn't march towards Good Friday because he had this amazing thought that this would do something good in the world, he listened to his father's voice and he did what his father said. And so when he heard the father say, now is the time to go to Jerusalem, that he had been waiting for. We see throughout his ministry, he tells people, don't tell people don't tell people what's happening. He tells people, it's not my time yet. He says, I can't yet go to Jerusalem because he's waiting to hear the father's voice. And that's the start of the Jesus Shaped Journey is to hear the call of God to listen to God and accept his invitation to transformation and to mission. And some of you have been in a place where you've been stuck and God's been calling you. And he's been saying, are you ready to step into the journey that I have for you? This is the hero's journey that we see in every story. It starts with something is not working and there's an invitation to something more. This is the call from God to join in. And the call requires us to get off Our butts and to get on the road to the hero's journey. And along the way, no matter what, we're going to face this challenge. We're going to have to die to some old things. We're going to have to die to our love of comfort, our passion to avoid pain, our work to feel big and to feel in charge and to be entitled. And the only way to participate in this call and the mission of God to be transformed in the way Jesus is is to follow him to the cross and bring with us all the places that are holding us back from following him. So we answer the call, we face the challenge and in that dark place when we take our unformed places to the cross in that challenge we will find there the invitation of the Holy Spirit to follow him into the way of life. He will be our mentor and our guide, our Gandalf in the story. At our lowest moment God will step in and find us where we are and invite us the journey itself and our submission to the way will change us into who we're meant to be. Now, now, suffering and choosing pain, there are religious traditions who have turned it into some sort of masochistic ritual of if I suffer, therefore I will become. But suffering for suffering's sake is really about you and really about your ego and really about You still grabbing hold of what God wants. But choosing pain is choosing to do what is right and what is good, what is just and what is true in the face of pain and isolation and abandonment and suffering and even the death that will come. So when we serve and when we suffer and when we experience pain, this is in service to others. Because righteousness and goodness and justice and truth are the seedbeds of the sort of flourishing that God promises in his kingdom. But all of those things require a little bit of suffering. So when I choose to engage rather than to run away from my spouse in conflict, I'm lovingly pursuing righteousness in the face of the pain that's going to come from the conversation. When I choose to talk to my child rather than to let them stew in their room and face the pain of their wrath, they are finding life by me choosing suffering. When I choose to have the hard conversation with an employee to confront their behavior, I'm lovingly suffering for their sake. When I choose the truth over a convenient lie, I'm suffering and seeing the kingdom of God come. When I choose awkward conversations over abandonment and losing the relationship, that suffering brings life. When I choose to do what is right rather than what brings me pleasure, I honor God and my suffering brings life to those around me. When I choose service and sacrifice over my privilege and my entitlement, the world around me experiences the love of God. When I choose humility over self-protection, People who I lead experience God's love. These simple acts of surrender to the kingdom way—they transform us and they transform the world around us. And this is the invitation to all of us: Is will you follow Jesus and the Jesus shaped journey on the way to the cross, so that you might have the life that comes with the resurrection? Let's take a moment. I'll, I'll invite the band to come up, but. What, what are you avoiding right now okay I, this is for you not for me i thought about this already i've got a list of things i'm avoiding but i i want you to think about it what are you avoiding right this moment what painful conversation are you trying to hide from what work are you pushing off for the future what do you sense that god is calling you into What sort of call are you hearing from the Father that's going to require something of you that you're not ready to step into? Some of you have accepted the call of the Father in some way and you're on the journey. The question is are you going to follow to the point of submission to death? To the point of death to that thing? Or or are you going to, some people, what they do is they take the call and then they wallow in the valley because they're not ready to move through the cross the only way to pain is to go through it did you guys know that the only way to go past pain is to go through it you can't go around it you can't go over it you can't pretend like it's not there the only way to healing from pain is through pain are some of you wallowing in the call waiting to take the challenge so that you can find the way forward Are some of you waiting for that mentor, the guide, the friend, the Holy Spirit? Has God brought you somebody to help you find your way to that completion? Because all of us have blind spots, and we need community, and we need friendship. And some of you need to go, you know what? You seem like you're hurting, and you seem like you're suffering. Why is God doing that? What's it for? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what's your pain and suffering for? Because if it's not for something, it's wasted. If it doesn't form you, it's just pain. But if it forms us into Christ likeness, it's profitable. It's something that brings life to us. And for those of you who have walked through the Jesus shaped journey and you're coming out limping on the other side, have you looked back and celebrated the transformation in the way of Jesus? Have you celebrated that the Jesus-shaped journey brought you life and changed the trajectory of your family? This is the work of following Jesus. in Let's take a moment and pray. Let's ask God to kind of show us where we're at in our hero's journey, the Jesus-shaped journey. Are we waiting for a call? Are we waiting to step into our challenge? Are we looking for our guide or or are we celebrating the completion of God's work? And then let's take the next step to not miss out how the Jesus-shaped journey brings life to us and brings life to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Palm Sunday is good news because you didn't run away because you embraced the cries of hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord because you did not shrink back from challenging the sanhedrin and challenging the money changers in the temple you didn't shrink back when the guards came in the garden and you didn't shrink back in the face of the sanhedrin you didn't sh- you didn't shrink back in the face of herod or of pilate the road to Golgotha at Redemption Hill on Good Friday, you didn't stop because you knew that your suffering would bring us life. Jesus, may we become the kind of people who embrace a little bit of pain and suffering so that we can see you, so that we can know you, so that we can see your kingdom come in power. Lord Jesus, we want you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion now. I'm going to say it really clearly so everybody knows. We're going to walk to the outside. We're going to come forward, receive communion, walk back up the middle aisle. Okay? Walk to the outside, forward. You're going to take the elements and you're going to take it on your own, whether up front or at your seat. And communion is a, a perfect representation of what we're joining into when we follow Jesus. We're saying that just like you had your body crushed, and just like you had your blood spilled, I'm going to follow you to the cross and join in with the family work of redemption. So come forward, receive communion, the body broken for you and the blood shed for you, so that we all might become children of God. Amen. And and receive
0: the Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org/connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God.